Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello everybody, welcome to LawPod. Uh, I am Luke Moffat. I am a lecturer in the School of Law and today uh, we're lucky to be joined by Elisa Dinovic uh, from Avocat Saint Frontier and we're going to be speaking today about victim participation at national trials for international crimes. Uh, can you maybe as an introduction just tell us a bit more about yourself and ASF? Yeah sure. Um, thanks for having me to start with. Um, so yeah I work for Avocat Sans Frontières which uh, acronym is ASF. It's a Brussels-based organization which was established in 1992. Um, so the mandate is very broadly to promote um, access to justice and human rights um, among vulnerable societies, so essentially in the South, as we say. So we have field offices in Africa as well uh, as projects uh, in Indonesia. Um, there I work more specifically on the topics of transitional justice and business and human rights, uh, which is me to be more involved with countries like Uganda, the DRC, um, the Central African Republic and also Tunisia. Okay. Um, so, uh, Elisa, you've been uh, presenting today on victim participation in national trials for international crimes. Can you maybe talk a little bit more about the experience of ASF and yourself and working in this area, um, in particular in Uganda and Central African Republic? Yeah, sure. So, um, in general, at ASF, we really work, um, we have a really field perspective on any kind of topic where, on which we work. Um, so we really work at the local level and the national level. Um, so in Uganda, it means working rather around the International Crimes Division uh, within the High Court um, and in the Central African Republic, working around um, all the proceedings related to international crimes. So uh, mostly with the newly established Special Criminal Court and as well at the um, domestic level. Um, in these countries, we do um, different things depending first on the needs and also uh, on the procedures. Obviously, there's a, a lot of work which is related to advocacy for making sure that victims get effective and meaningful participation in the proceedings. Um, and even, for instance, that uh, the principles of reparation are going to be acknowledged in the law and eventually um, enforced. But we also work very much with actors uh, in this context, um, trying to um, first analyze what are their needs and trying to strengthen their capacities too. So we will, for example, uh, do a lot of training for lawyers on topics related to these proceedings, which are quite special in the context. Uh, dealing with international crimes and sometimes with issues which are completely unknown. Uh, for instance, victims' participation in Uganda is a very uh, foreign concept. Um, so these are the kind of things we do, but we also work um, with the final beneficiaries, let's say, who will be the victims, trying to make sure that they get relevant information and that their voice is really heard as well by all the other actors involved, yeah. Yeah. Um, and is, is, there, is there almost like a tension then with legal professionals and judges when you got like in the common law system, it's not familiar, as you said, in Uganda versus in, you know, Central African Republic, where you've got the party civil. Is it um, easier to engage people in, in car to 
adopt this procedure or ex- at least explain to other lawyers or get them involved? Um, yes, I'd say yes, because it's um, at least the concept is known then. Uh, even in car civil uh, party representation uh, uh, will require quite a lot of uh, delivering lots of training as well as to what it until where we can go also as well in a civil party system um, because it's not always that all the facets of these uh, procedures are well, uh, let's say, mastered by, by those who should be um, using them um, and also because the rules are not always very clearly established. But for sure it's going to be easier than in Uganda where everything uh, is new um, and has to be implemented for the first time. So um, unfortunately it's like trials where we would like um, to say that there is not a right to do mistakes, but it's not like the process will go very smoothly. Obviously, there's a lot of obstacles on the way. Um, so in Uganda, there is a lot of work of really trying for to, to, to make sure that the concepts are integrated and appropriated by the actors and not just that they are here because they were in an agreement, they were like in some rules which have been drafted uh, at highest levels, higher levels, sorry. Yeah, uh, I, I suppose uh, with... Uh Central African Republic, Uganda, and also the DRC. These are also situations before before the International Criminal Court, where there are other victims who are participating. Uh, is is so? The issue of complementarity here is how far should states be including victim participation in these sort of national trial processes? Does it make a difference um, in terms of the quality of justice, or is it more about sort of? Um, copycat of the ICC that the ICC is sort of setting up these standards and it's like the best practices to follow or at least mirror what the ICC is doing so it's a difficult question (laughs) it's uh maybe it's quite difficult to answer like um I think it will really depend um that the idea of victims participation has been really influenced by the ICC is clearly something we see everywhere um indeed because we are in systems based on complementarity um, there's a lot of rules which had to be integrated in these systems to reflect what was in the Rome Statute, and victim participation is clearly one. And even in contexts like in the DRC, for instance, uh, where you have a tradition of victim participation through a civil um, party system, um, it's still not necessarily like very, like let's say the, the, the rights are not necessarily very strong either for the victims. Um, for instance, in, in the DRC, there is no um, there is no possibility for for the civil parties as such to trigger the proceeding. They really have to rely on the prosecutor to to do the investigation and to trigger uh, a proceedings, which is not that strong. Um, so yeah, you have a lot of influence from the ICC and. On paper, let's say positive influence because let's say we can assume that effective like participation of victims is something desirable. Um, then, if victim participation at the ICC is not necessarily very clear either, uh, lots of principles are established on a case by case basis um, uh, when it comes to representation, but also to participation. It's very much the judges at the different stages who will decide what are the rights, what the victims can do, um, and so on and so forth. And to some extent, we see it, it, it's also sometimes a bit complicated to kind of establish what are the best practices um, in this relation and what should be done at the um, local level when things are not that clear at the ICC level. And again, at the local level, you don't necessarily have very 
clear rules for everything. So there's always a lot of margin left to the different legal actors that are involved. Um, and this really has to be, uh, it's a gap which really has to be filled on a case-by-case -case basis and also like making sure that there will be some actors who will be able to promote the right principles in the right place here. Yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose also with, uh, you've got these, these domestic trials going on and you've been you know, engaging um, and visiting these countries. What do you see as sort of the key challenges in making this work in practice? Um, yeah, there's unfortunately a lot of key challenges, I'd say. Um, in the talk earlier, I really separated the issues into like around three main blocks, uh, one being representation, one being actual participation in proceedings, and the other one being reparation. And within each of these blocks, you you, you have very like very like huge challenges for representation we are in systems where uh, legal aid is often not available for victims uh, you might get it for the defense for the accused but it might not be that there is a possibility for victims to get legal aid and also judicial assistance so what if they have to pay a fee to 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 enter into some proceedings or how do they get access to a lawyer uh, and a fortiori to a lawyer who will be able to properly represent their interest um, so that's really a, a very, very important challenge. Um, when it comes to participation, again, it's for these lawyers to also be able to navigate through the rules or through the lack of rules sometimes. Um, and here you don't have any kind of principle. It really depends on uh, each context, each tribunal, each actor, let's say. Um, but like the issue of, for instance, accessing a court is also an issue. Um, we are dealing with countries which are quite vast sometimes, um, so it's not that the victims can go where the trial is supposed to happen. So um, in the DRC, there's been this practice now of dealing a lot with mobile courts to make sure that the courts are also getting closer to um, the beneficiaries. Um, in Uganda as well, now the trial is happening in Gulu, the hearing in the, tr in the, in the trial phase. Um, but in Central African Republic, which is a, a context which is extremely insecure and the conflict is still going on in most parts of the country, there's going to be like a big challenge in terms of having accessibility to the court uh, in Bangui. And let's say to the courts, because there's more than the, the special criminal court as well. And finally, for reparation, the biggest challenge is to have reparation effect like actually happening in the end so it's first having the principle recognized but it's making sure that if it's ordered it's like adequate preparation so it means listening to what the victims want which is not always the case uh, and then having them enforced um, and we are dealing with accused which are often found indigent and states are not necessarily willing or able to uh, pay compensation that have been ordered or yeah so that's a lot of challenges that we, we, we see in this context here. Yeah, yeah, no, it's just you know, big challenges. <laughs> um, I, we, we were in Uganda in, in July there and uh, we've been there in the last, last few years, but I remember stumbling into the court in Gulu uh, in 2011 in July and Kyle was making his first appearance and there was, there was a band outside and there was like a whole procession and it was, it was almost like a ceremony and you had this, this difference between the courtroom being very small and packed full of like NGOs, civil society, uh, diplomats, journalists, and there's victims and you know trying to peek in through the door to see this. It was it was almost like a circus that was happening. Like so many people were brought together, um, and yet you know we're seven years down the road, and like even when we try to go back July this year, 
the one of the judges enough enough petrol in his car to get to the actual proceedings. Uh, the bail hearing is, is only starting to be heard. There's already been an inter- uh, uh, African court or the African Commission has already ruled that uh, he's been uh, denied his fair trial rights and ordered compensation against him and also ordered that he should have an amnesty. And there's been this whole ping-pong back between the Supreme Court and Constitutional Court um, in Uganda itself trying to work out this whole amnesty issue. I suppose it's it's frustrating for the victims that from, from engaging with them, one of them said, you know, I prefer to be a victim in the Ogwen case at the ICC than the Coelho because at least at the ICC we've got lawyers who got legal aid and even if there's no um, money with the accused, at least the trust fund will give some sort of reparations where with the, the International Crimes Division in Uganda there hasn't been that much thought about how it's going to be funded. And I suppose it's it's the frustration that there's that legally we've made these sort of jurisdictional lines where different victims fall into but in reality these victims might have suffered the same harm such as like being abducted as a child sexual violence murder and um, so, so it can seem somewhat arbitrary in terms of how we frame justice it's not really a question it's more of, more of a comment <laughs> um, about the challenges of doing complementarity yeah. um, and you, you mentioned in your talk about it's almost like this two-tiered system we're trying to create around international crimes um, for, for victims. How does that, you know, sort of feel on the ground when they're engaged with these sort of processes? Yeah, uh, I think we, we we really have also the same um, observations as you you do. Uh, we hear a lot that, yes, the victims, they would like to rather be victim in the Ongwen case than in the Koyelo case. Um, and it's been, yeah, eight years and not much has happened. Uh, charges just got confirmed and even just got translated uh, for the accused, which uh, took some time. So there's a lot of fatigue on, on the part of the victims because um, a lot of hopes has been raised uh, in relation to this one or two trials, if even if we take the, the ongoing case. And, but the gen- their life has not really changed much um, or not at all. Um, and still they're very much solicited all the time t- about this trial. So frustration is really essential here like it's something which should not be underestimated um, in, in this trial and and we we did this report like last year uh, which is a beggar has no choice and that a beggar has no choice was a quote it's like at some point like what the victims want can they really tell what they want will really will they really have a word to say in what they want will they ever get something um so like we also face here the issue if we want to maybe open the the analysis to the scope of the analysis to also include the ICC, that there is very limited complementarity in the end. Uh, complementarity was, okay, a tribunal was established with procedures um, which meet like quite high standards in terms of uh, fair trial standards and victims' participation again. Um, but when it comes to what victims can expect as justice and reparation is definitely something that they expect. Here there is no complementarity anymore. And so this is also something which has to be taken into account, like really not um, overlooked in the process. And for now, it's also the the court is, as you say, like working with very limited resources for its um, day-to-day operations and very much reacting um, on an ad hoc basis to a lot of issues that arise. Um, for instance, how do we register victims? Um, and so it's also difficult to go as far as to anticipate the, the reparation phase for, for this court with such limited capacities. But 
Um, that's going to be quite key in terms of if we want to speak of success, even though I think it's not necessarily the best concept for this kind of processes um, either. So, yeah, I think. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very comprehensive. I, I think, you know, the ICs and the issue of complementarity has suffered from being maybe schizophrenic in the sense that on the one hand, it's trying to ensure that trials happen. Um, it ends in punity and holds those people to account. But on the other hand, it's trying to incorporate sort of principles that come about in human rights law and the, the other obligations that states have, particularly around trying to ensure investigations, prosecutions, but also in remedies for victims. And I, I always think that it's a bit of a concern that uh, when the ICC you know, comes into the country, you know, it was there since, what, 2004 in Uganda, then pulled out in 2014 when nothing was happening, there's nobody been arrested. Ogwen, Dominic Ogwen is arrested in uh, January 2015 in car, And then, you know, the interest comes back. Donors are keen to fund the ICD. Um, there's a greater focus on, like, transitional justice. I suppose it's, it's that sort of debate about the role of the ICC in transitional justice. Is it sort of framing how we deal with the past um, and how we deal with these international crimes that we create a sort of focus on perpetrators? And in that, we're framing how we think about different crimes in the past. Like with Coelho, it's in 1996 Pabo, um, which is just up the road from Gula. It's not too far away. But he's, he's been charged under like quite antiquated laws, like the was it the, the 1960 um, Geneva Conventions Act in Uganda, rather than sort of the International Crimes Act, where you've got codified war crimes rather than just how the, Uganda was trying to incorporate the Geneva Conventions. That's how we think of the past is in quite narrow legal terms compared to broader human rights obligations, but also transitional justice, that there's very little space for civil society to say, oh, we need to speak about broader processes. In Uganda, we need a truth commission. We need a body to start looking after the children, who, the tens of thousands of children and adults who have been abducted, um, or even just the issues like land reform after the conflict, after people were displaced from their homes and put into like protected villages. Um, so I suppose the, the challenge I always find with complementarity is, is it a way of sort of narrowly framing how we think of dealing with the past? And I suppose it's difficult for a civil society actor. Um, how do you sort of navigate that when you're dealing with victims, you know, on quite an intimate basis, like you're, you're you know, working to try and empower them, explain to them their human rights, but within a criminal law framework? Yeah. Um, I think, like, before, like, seeing how we navigate, it's just, like, it's also the sad reality that... Um, Transition, like transitional justice has become very much focused on international criminal justice. So like already like a scope which is very restricted. And in the end, it's always very resource driven. So we think first of the resources before thinking of the objectives. And I mean, when it comes to Uganda, it's difficult to blame like the court for that because they just don't have much like a lot of resources so then obviously it's how you're going to get creative with what you have but there's a maximum that one can do with the, this kind of resources and here you you can jump to the issue of like the donor community as well because they also very much um orientate the priorities with what they are like willing to fund and at which moment and you have sometimes like also change in time as you just mentioned from the icc to the icd um so it's very difficult to navigate because there's not a lot of elements that we can actually, um, like really, on which we have a lot of influence. Um, so, like advocacy has its limits um, because, 
like it's already a process which has going on been going on for like almost a decade um, a decade and like there's always like for instance in Uganda like the the, 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 the issue of the adoption of the transitional justice strategy um, but that's also like that's one point and then you you'll have okay we will inform the victim we will make sure that they are like still in the loop but you can't keep going on like during eight years on the ground to say oh not much has happened we're sorry so there's a lot of um so yeah, we can navigate, but there's some limits to which I think all actors face. But here, what might be important for societies like in Uganda, but also in Central African Republic is, I think, really coordination with actors, among actors, sorry, because from the moment we're dealing with limited resources, this is impacting every actor of the chain, not only the institutional actors, but also the civil society side, the NGOs, um, and so on and so forth. And here, it's very important that there is like a common strategy among actors so that they will be able at least to use these limited resources in a very optimal, like at least to optimize the use of these very limited resources. So that's what we're trying to, to do in Uganda. And the last few, few months, I think it really showed that it can, we can go a step further than what we've managed to do um, maybe in the last couple of years. But yeah, with uh, some limits, obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I suppose uh, one, one of the big issues when you're starting to talk about Central African Republic is um, obviously the Bambi case. And... Uh, the the special courts was to capture you know just beyond uh, the two thousand two thousand three violence mm. uh, to like the speed of violence more recently. Um, you mentioned in your talk that you know sort of and there are now but like in, in Uganda you've had eight years of victims participating and seeing no reparations. Is it is it sort of frustrating then that they go through this process and they're maybe not left better off or they're left worse off like so th- i'm yeah. just thinking of the you know the bamba case of the icc that you had a long winded process that um was engaging victims a lot and trying to hire to shape that um the reparations policy that was going to come forward to the court but then he was acquitted um a few months ago i suppose you mentioned you talk about the issue of expectations of victims that you go through these processes i am um, complementarity is just a way of ending impunity um but at the end of the day should we just be thinking broader than just criminal processes in terms of we need to have other bodies established so that if criminal trials do fall apart, there's this, like a safety net. Um, so you mentioned like reparations that we need to start thinking about it in terms of complementarity. Um, can I ask, you know, where's your thinking going in that? Is it like, are we thinking about using such as a BEMBA, the sort of victim applications or decisions before that being used in domestic courts as a basis for like, civil reparations um, or with the, the special court is there any thoughts of how that would work um, as party civil that if there isn't enough evidence to suggest criminal responsibility can it then fall back on civil responsibility um, y- yeah that's going to be I mean the, the, the management of victims expectations I think has been a great issue but not only in our context like in all transitional justice context I don't know like when the proceedings start like if like really anyone could anticipate that a trial could last for 10 years or so, then appeals for in the end having someone um, not found guilty, which is fair because it's a principle of criminal law. So it's, um, that's somehow fair in terms of procedure, but this is not a normal criminal procedure. That's something where you have thousands of victims behind waiting for something. Um, and you can always manage victims' expectations, but I think there will always be like an assumption beforehand that 
they will get something out of a trial, at least some kind of a truth or a conviction. So this is maybe the, the first part to, to, to what you just say. Yeah, it's, this is something which we, I think all the international community or even like civil society, all the actors need to be a bit more aware in terms of sort of like the length of procedure and like the, the, the final impact of conviction or, or, or not a conviction. But then comes very much the issue of complementarity between different mechanisms. And unfortunately, again, in this context where we are, you often only have these criminal justice mechanisms and which focus on a very limited number of perpetrators, which is also normal, but it means that it leaves a lot of people outside uh, the scope of these proceedings or, uh, because it, they have to be related to, to, do, to the conviction of the accused. Um, and here, yes, the, the, I think we have to, to think a bit more in terms of as where else we can get reparations or civil, um, like civil um, tribunals can be one, one avenue for, like, for that. But we see in the DRC, for instance, that it's not necessarily like even if there is rights, even if there are procedures, um, it's not necessarily working that there are reparations ordered in the end. Or not ordered, but en enforced, implemented, because they are ordered. Um, so it's really like the issue of trying to get even something more, um, administ like, like administrative, um, sorry, mechanisms of administrative reparation is one. Um, but then this is like when we were talking about limited resources, this is clearly like an aspect which requires a lot of resources and a lot of commitment and from the state, uh, which we don't necessarily have in, in, in these countries again. Um, we tend to forget like all these commitments which had been taken originally about truth and reconciliation commissions. Not meaning that a truth and reconciliation commission is the solution to every conflict and everywhere and maybe more research, more data are needed to, to see what would be the role of these commissions in these societies uh, as well. For instance, in the Central African Republic, which is a country which has non-conflict and coup like for how many decades, like... So th th there are lots of questions to raise, but um, we, 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 we have to be careful to not just like li limit ourselves to, to what we have, um, even though it's difficult to try to be creative in this context where there is not that much political space either. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can't tell much more. <laughs> I, think, I think we're focused on some of the challenges, maybe some of the negatives of this sort of approach. Maybe as to sort of uh, round it out towards the end, is to maybe think of some of the positive aspects of this sort of work. That uh, I, th I think when you look at other transitional societies where they've achieved stuff um, in terms of like truth, justice, and reparations and guarantees of non repetition, is that um, victims are quite central in that sort of struggle, that nothing gets done without victims advocating whether politically, legally. Um, what what do you see the benefits then of, uh, as rules of the organisations like ASF in terms of, you know, building capacity with organisations um, and these institutions as well as, as representing and, and working with victims? I think there are positive effects, but which still maybe need to be at some point measured or really assessed properly if we want to get back into a more academic or scientific approach. But... In the end, there's a lot of work which has been done around these trials. And in the talk, I say we should be careful to not create a two-tiered system, meaning that we just focus all resources on a very limited legal bubble, let's say, um, because we only focus on these uh, mechanisms and on the persons who are involved, on the actors involved. And at the same time, it's countries which face 
much broader challenges also at the, in terms of legal system, in terms of judiciary or also non-judiciary because justice has also like different uh, meanings and different avenues. Um, but I still think that the, the capacities that are built, if the, the work is done in like also with a, a broader purpose of like trying to build capacities at a broader level in these legal systems, then you can have like positive repercussions in the sense that these actors, what they get, they will be able to use it in different contexts. But it's also a matter of creating opportunities for them to be to be able to 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 use these skills or these tools in in different um, legal contexts. So. Um, this means, for instance, for us to not only work with uh, judicial institutions, with the judiciary, but very much trying to uh, rely on um, alternative dispute resolution mechanisms, um, not necessarily for international crimes, because there's a lot of discussion on this, but in general, like seeing what works in this society and see how we can make connections also with the more like formal um, legal actors. Um, and this sometimes will be the same people as the ones who are involved in this context now of international criminal justice. So it's, again, it's difficult to say in terms of like measuring like how the capacities that are built are actually used beyond um, the initial objective. Um, but I don't think it's vain, especially in, in, in these systems where, as you say, a lot come from the civil society. Um, yeah. Yeah. So in in a way, this sort of work uh, lends itself to like social and legal transformation. That uh, you have countries like the Central African Republic, where what fifteen years ago uh, that it was saying the judges were referring to the International Criminal Court saying we're unable to sort of prosecute these cases. To now in twenty eighteen to be saying we're now starting to be able. We're starting to develop our own capacity uh, and ability to sort of prosecute these cases and think about these issues more broadly as a country, as a society, and similarly in Uganda that these issues are important and need to be still be dealt with and we need to include victims in that process. Yeah, and like to, in the Central African Republic, I think right now it's one of the major challenges. Like there is the Special Criminal Court, but it can't be that um, only the special, the special Criminal Court is going to be developed in this country. And I think the Special, the special Criminal Court itself is very aware of this, that every development which goes towards this court also have positive repercussions on the rest of the judiciary, especially like the criminal justice system, but not only. And for instance, if you look at legal aid, that's one of the things which is extremely important, that yes, there will be legal aid, uh, quite a sophisticated system for sure at the special criminal court level. It cannot be that it's only at the special criminal court system. It has to... Um, like foster the development of like a much broader legal aid system, which is a, a big issue in the Central African Republic. And again, when it comes to the victims, um, at some point, it's really like what we call legal empowerment, uh, making them in a capacity to act and also maybe to not only be victims, but um, also like be a citizen and being able to act for a lot of different matters um, in their life, not only about like uh, war crimes or crimes against humanity, but just a lot of other disputes or issues they may they may face in their day to day life. So yeah, it's the kind of perspective that we always need to to keep also on all the sides of the of the um, process. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's good. Thanks so much, uh, Elisa, for for joining Thank us today you. on LawPod. And if you're interested in reading more um, about this topic, please check out the show notes after today's broadcast. 
And if you're interested in the work of ASF and Elisa's work, uh, check out their website and their current operations in Africa and Indonesia. Thank you very much for listening and for Elisa for joining us. Thank you.